we're on our sixth week of our Thursday night gatherings, and we've been uh, hearing about questions Jesus asked. So I, I, I love this topic. Um, I love it because Jesus had a way of asking simple, direct, tough questions that got to the heart of what he wanted his disciples to learn. And like all of scripture, his questions are always so rich uh, in meaning for our lives that they can teach us so much about God. Um, tonight we're actually going to study two questions that Jesus asked, so it's a two-for-one night. Um, and they concern nothing other than who Jesus is. Um, so we've got quite a, quite a ride to go here. But... Um, today, there's, there's no greater question for us to answer than who we say Jesus is. So if you'll pray with me, um, God, you are, you are great, and, and we love you. And we, we thank you for just making this space and this time to come together. And um, Whether we've had good days or, or bad days, uh, we know that you are, you are sovereign, and you are good, and, and you are love. Lord, I, I confess that I've, I've treated teaching and learning your word like a burden this, this past week, but it is a privilege, God, and, and I would just pray that you would, you would speak through me and that you would use, that my words would be your words, Lord. And so we, we just thank you for Jesus, and we pray all these things in his name. Amen. Um. So we're actually not going to have the, the scripture on the TV tonight, so you're actually going to have to use Bibles or apps to, or just listen to my voice uh, for, for the text that we're going to be studying, which is Matthew 16, 13 through 19. Um, and it says this, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Who is Jesus? This is the simple question that this passage attempts to answer. But as this passage shows, simple questions are not the same as easy ones. And simple questions often have answers with complex implications. As we see in verse 17, Jesus tells Peter that it was not flesh and blood that revealed Jesus' identity to Peter, but my Father who is in heaven. We can only answer Jesus' question, who do you say that I am, with the help of God. The invisible Father, it's, as scripture says in John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. He must introduce us to his son who walked the earth as a human with flesh and blood just like ourselves. 
without God's miraculous intervention in our hearts, without the Holy Spirit moving in us to open our eyes to the true Jesus, we're unable to see him as he truly is. The Messiah, fully man, fully God, born of a virgin who was crucified, separated from God, made to be sin, who died only to be resurrected after three days before he ascended to the right hand of God where he now sits waiting to return. But what prevents us today or those around us from introducing ourselves to Jesus? Why was so much written about him with a whole religion named after him, ancient texts written about him by people who knew him, an entire theological discipline devoted to studying him, it's Christology, centuries of human knowledge build up around him with all of this information. Why does it still take God to make him known to us? Whether we like it or not, we're finite people separated from God because of the fall. And trying to know Jesus on our own without the help of God is like trying to cross a canyon. So let's look at verses 16, 13 through 14 to see what happens when we try to understand Jesus without God's help. Here's what it says. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, Others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Here we see that Jesus' contemporaries, people who knew him, saw him, maybe even spoke to him, often fell short of understanding his identity. This dialogue between uh, Jesus and his disciples took place sometime in the middle of Jesus' ministry, after the Sermon on the Mount, after he performed many miracles, including walking on water, healing lepers, feeding the 5,000, after he was rejected at Nazareth. His name and actions were getting around. He's, he's not a nobody. Um, they, like us, had ideas that were created through history and culture that gave them expectations for what the Messiah looked like, who the Messiah was, what he was supposed to do. The text mentions a few, um, but in the interest of time, I'll briefly go over the reference to Elijah um, because it's, it's seen through, all throughout um, the Gospels. Why did some people think Jesus was Elijah? What's going on there? Well, most Jews at the time believed Elijah was going to return before the Messiah arrived. Um, I'm not going to go into great detail about why that was, but Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, identifies Elijah as the forerunner to the Messiah. It's Malachi 4 or 5 if you want to read it later. Elijah did not die but ascended to be with God, so many people believed he would descend when the time came. Now, Jesus knew that Malachi didn't mean the literal Elijah, but someone who came in the spirit and power of Elijah. That's what he says in Luke 1.17. And just in case you're wondering, many people also thought John the Baptist was the resurrected Elijah. So that should give us a sense of how many ideas were circulating at the time and how confused people were. Now, I think it's important to note that these are not negative comparisons, John the, Elijah, John the Baptist. Um, in the eyes of many Jews, to be likened to Elijah or Jeremiah or or other prophets, it was a great compliment. It said that the man was receiving God's words, that others should follow his teachings, but they were also saying that Jesus was just a man, nothing more. If Jesus was Elijah, then the Messiah was still coming. And these were the flattering, flattering ideas about Jesus. Others were also starting to call him a heretic. Um, they could not see Jesus for who he was because he did not fit into their ideas about who they believed he should be. And 
today we also have ideas that have been built up through history and in our culture that tell us who Jesus was and who he ought to be to us. I myself was very much influenced by everything but the Bible when I was creating my first image of Jesus. Um, the early 2000s, which you may remember, <laughs> they were very formative years for me. I was growing up. Um, it seemed like there, were, there was just a lot of books, magazines, articles, TV documentaries, movies that claimed to have found the real Jesus or, or uncovered some new piece of evidence that would change everything. Right? I think success like movies like Passion of the Christ, Vin- books like The Da Vinci Code stimulated a lot of this, a lot of this um, production. So I'll tell you quickly about one of the ideas I was exposed to. Um, not the only one. This is the idea of, of Jesus as a political revolutionary. Um, not too long ago, between 2013 and 2014, I worked at Barnes and Noble. Um, and while I was there, a, a book called Zealot was on the best outer lists. Uh, its subtitle was The Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. In it, the author claimed that the true Jesus who walked the earth 2,000 years ago was a political revolutionary, nothing more, nothing less. He wanted to end Roman rule in Judea, overthrow the rule of a corrupt priestly caste, but uh, he was executed before he got the chance. This is a very common view that many people have of Jesus. And it's not the only one. There are countless others. They range from he didn't exist at all, uh, to he was just a cynic philosopher, um, follower of John the Baptist, who took up John's teachings after John was executed. goes on and on from there. Um, I was never committed to any specific theories or ideas about who Jesus was. I never had conversations with people where I strongly argued one way or another. Uh, I was generally skeptical about the virgin birth, miracles he performed, his claims to be God's son. Um, I knew there were a lot of ideas about Jesus, so it seemed that the truth was probably somewhere in the middle, so long as it didn't involve miracles. Uh, A few years ago, God used my love of reading, studying, learning to sweep away the ideas I had about Jesus that weren't grounded in biblical truth. Um, I read the Bible for the first time three years ago. And the Jesus I encountered there was honestly unlike anything anyone I had expected. He is so much more complete, so much more fulfilling, uh, so much greater than any of the other ideas I had heard about him. So I, I have and will answer Jesus' questions like Peter did. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I know, as Jesus tells Peter, that my correct answer to that question came not from anything I was able to accomplish or learn. It came from God. But when I was reading and studying this text, I learned something else about myself, which was honestly hard to take at first. And that is, I can't claim I have a full, perfect image or understanding of Jesus. I say this because of the exchange between Jesus and Peter that happens immediately after Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. It happens in Matthew 16, 21 through 23. It says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So in, in one section, Peter is blessed by Jesus because he gets the answer right, and then immediately following, Jesus says, Get behind me, Satan. 
Peter interrupts him, and that was a severe break of protocol. Disciples at the time did not correct their teachers, and they did not do it in public. This should tell us how convicted Peter felt about what Jesus was teaching. Right? What would it take for you right now to just stand up and start correcting me? It's just a thing we don't do, right? It's, it's, it's a cultural norm. Um, Peter had no idea what it actually meant for Jesus to be the Messiah, even though he got the answer to Jesus' identity correct. Like many of his fellow Jews, Peter believed the Messiah was going to bring a kingdom in his lifetime. The same things that prevented others who lived in Judea from seeing Jesus as the Christ also prevented Peter from fully grasping Jesus' claims about himself. Peter wanted and expected the kingdom without the cross. This is the same temptation Satan tempted Jesus with. Hence, Jesus' likening of Peter to Satan. So I know for quite a while after we became a Christian, the Jesus I like to pray to was full of love, compassion, grace, patience, and humility. And he is full of those things. Don't get me wrong there. But when I was living with that understanding of Christ, I turned anger, any anger, anger at anything, into a sin. So I remember Cammy, who's my wife, who's walking in the back there. We, we, had, a huge, we had huge disagreements uh, over whether or not it was okay to be angry. And I remember asking her if Jesus was ever angry. And because she knows much more than I do, said, why don't, why don't you go read this section where he turns over the tables of the money changers in the temple in Jerusalem? So I had to go look back on those passages. And in that process, I learned about righteous anger. And I got a glimpse of how much Jesus hated sin. Two weeks ago, if you were here, Mills gave us a great idea, a great uh, example of what it's like to learn something new about Christ. I definitely had to reevaluate my image of Jesus when I heard that he came not to unify, but to divide. You know, I actually saw that passage as an option on the teaching sheet, and I thought, eh, I'm going to let somebody else take that one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but what about Heath's sermon last Sunday, if you heard that, um, about the different Gospels? I know that challenged me. I, I, I realized I tended towards certain types of Gospels. Um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if there were different versions of Jesus at the center of those different Gospels. Um, I like what, what Scott McKnight wrote about this. He said, if we were all honest, he's speaking of Christians here, and if we each submitted our picture of Jesus to the acid test of the evidence of the Gospels, we would each discover that our depictions are nothing other than a reflection of our hopes and a projection of ourselves and our beliefs onto Jesus, at least in part. And our goal as honest readers of the Gospels and genuine followers of Jesus is to find the real Jesus and to submit to that Jesus. And this, no doubt, involves a surrender of our own images of Jesus. So what now? It's very heavy. Where, where do we go from here? How do we test our version of Jesus against the truth? Here's an idea. Maybe gather with friends and have each person write out their image of who Jesus is, his character, his demeanor, his actions, his speech, his teachings, his relationship with God. Share them with one another and then read through the Gospels looking for things that both confirm and challenge the illustration you've given. That sounds very time-consuming. Um, try just a few verses that I find to be very personally challenging. Uh, one is Matthew twenty-six fifty-two. This is where uh, Jesus disarms Peter. 
uh, he says, um, put, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or maybe Luke 12, 4 through 5. This is another one I find challenging. This is where Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more than they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Here's another question. How, how do we guard against teaching incorrect notions to others and perpetuating our cultural or individual ideas about him in new disciples? I think Paul gave us the answer when he wrote to the Corinthians, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's 1 Corinthians 2, two. Jesus' teachings are important, but they're not the main point. We have to make sure that anytime we find ourselves discussing issues of faith with friends, family, colleagues, strangers, or others, that we always proclaim who Jesus said he was and his death and resurrection. And we must always remember that when we get arrogant in our salvation or when we get discouraged in our evangelization, that it was not flesh and blood that revealed this to us, but our Father who is in heaven. And then finally, I have a challenge for those here tonight who are seeking. Maybe sometimes it seems like there's more questions than answers, or there's more walls than passageways, and maybe you need hope, or maybe you don't think you need anything. I, I get that stance, definitely. I've been there. But I, I challenge you to read and, and struggle with, talk about, pray about what Jesus claims about himself in John 14, 6, where he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So if you'll pray with me now, and, and I'll close and we can go. So God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your word, that we can learn who he is, that we can tell others about him, and that we can follow him. We love you, and we want to know you, and we want to have a relationship with you. So I pray that we would just, we would just leave here tonight with just a, a zeal for, for just growing in our relationship with you, for, for reading your word, or maybe just praying to you, or gathering with others to, to discuss you and learn more about you, or maybe becoming, becoming a bigger partner in our fellowship of believers, our church family. Thank you for Jesus, Lord. Thank you for, for making him to be sin. We, we just, there's just, there's just no words, Lord, to, to explain how, how thankful we are. And we love you, but we know you love us so much more than that. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.